Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church uh, into this sanctuary. For those of you that are gathered with us here, and uh, just a a great joy to gather with you all. For those of you that are gathering with us for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, your back porch, dining room table, wherever you happen to be, and thanks for inviting us into those spaces. If we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name's Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to serve as one of the pastors at Crosspoint And I get the privilege of opening up God's word with you all this morning. And as we make our way through the book of John, we've been doing this for the better part of 2021. This is going to take us to all the way up until Advent. And it's the series we've entitled Come and See, which is this invitation, regardless of the text, regardless of which spot we find ourselves in the gospel of John, there is this ongoing invitation that we would come, that we would be welcomed in, that God has welcomed us in, all right? Whatever you're bringing in this morning, know that there's a God who wants to meet with you, and he's inviting us, and he's showcasing for us what it looks like to to see Jesus more clearly, that we might worship him, that we might find joy in life, and this morning, we find ourselves in John chapter 17, so I want to encourage you, if you brought a Bible, please turn there. You also can go to cplife.church on your phone, and if you go there, you will see um, a card that you can click that says sermon notes. And if you click that, you will see the text for today. You'll see any of the stuff, things that I put up on the slides. There's space for you to take notes um, and to be able to follow along that way. But to kind of set this up, in case you're new to this, um, and just as a reminder for all of us, we have been in a section of the book of John. It's like through the first 12 chapters, we had just learning about Jesus and his ministry and his, some of his teachings and, and miracles and interactions with people. And then as we got into chapter 13, through what we will be finishing up next week, 17, is this, typically it's called the farewell discourse, which sounds very like high and lofty, right? I might have entitled it like stuff Jesus said near the end, right? Uh, but like however you, you frame that, it's his final words and exhortations and even some actions before he goes to the cross, And so in John chapter 13, Jesus gives this new commandment that we might love one another as he has loved us. And then he got down on his knees and demonstrated what that looked like by washing the disciples' feet, even those that would betray him, would deny him, that would run off. Like, this is the disposition of our Savior. And then he begins to promise that there's this mission that's going to continue even after he goes to the cross, after he resurrects, after he ascends. And we are going to be a people that are going to carry on this mission empowered by the Spirit. And he says, so I'm going to send the Spirit to you. So it's actually better that I go so that the Spirit might come. And in this reminder, again, of the calling to a fruitfulness in John 15, then Jesus tells us that he is the vine and we're the branches. And what does it look like to be closely connected to him so that we might bear fruit? And as we've looked at over the last couple weeks, even in John 16, then we know that the world is going to misunderstand us, that there's going to be animosity, there's going to be trials and difficulties. And again, the spirit is given to us so that we might be encouraged in what God has for us. And all of this leads to where we find ourselves this morning in John 17, which has come to be known as the high priestly prayer. And what's so fascinating about this is you have Jesus going before his father in prayer. And it's as if the disciples are just getting to sort of peer in, to overhear, to sort of eavesdrop on Jesus' time of prayer. And it wasn't uncommon for Jesus to pray. He prayed all the time. But what is so fascinating is is in all of these chapters, starting in 13, 14, 15, 16, and now into 17, particularly these words, there is a closeness, there's an intimacy about prayer. 
and to know what was on the Lord Jesus' heart before he would go to the cross. What were the things that he was praying for? And so we want to look at that, not only this morning, but we'll finish up this high priestly prayer uh, next week as well. But this morning, we want to look at John 17, the first 19 verses. So I'm going to go ahead and read this, and then we'll make our way back through this marvelous text, this prayer, that it might encourage us, challenge us, that it might give us a greater sense of the God of the, God of the universe, like of his love for you. That one of the things we see is not just that Jesus is praying for himself, though we see that, and not just that he's praying for his disciples, though we see that, but that Jesus was looking ahead to see all that would come to believe in him, that would make up his church, that Jesus was praying for you, that he knew you'd be here on this day on October 10th, 2021, gathered in this particular space, in this time, in this city, in this community. And he's praying for his church. And so my hope and prayer is that we would be encouraged in that. So hear these words, hear this prayer of Jesus in John 17, beginning verse one, says this, Jesus spoke these things and he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Verse six, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. And while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. This is God's word for us this morning, this prayer of Jesus And as we get into this, one thing I'm reminded of that I'm convicted of is I see Jesus who has this dependency on the Father in heaven. That the God-man Jesus, the Son of God, has a disposition, a posture to pray, and yet I operate as if I can just get things done on my own. I was looking back over a sermon years ago from Tim Keller, and he said it this way, which I found to be incredibly insightful and convicting. He says, in a nutshell, we see prayer as medicine, But Jesus sees it as food. We see prayer as a vitamin supplement to our strength. 
And Jesus sees it as a whole new diet, a whole new way of living. There must be riches in prayer we don't know anything about. We only pray when we feel like we've blown it. But Jesus never blows it. But Jesus is praying all the time. And so what I want to start out this morning by doing is looking at these first five verses and to see both the posture and the purpose that we see in prayer. And just know this, there, is a, there are more layers and complexity. Some theologians have commented, like it will take, one that I read this week said, it takes about three and a half minutes to read Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17, and it might take all of eternity for us to just kind of experience the depth of it, to understand its riches and nuances and layers. Like there's a beautiful complexity to it. And we don't have all of eternity this morning, and I'm not that smart to showcase all of those things, but there are a few things this morning that I want to be able to highlight. And let's keep in mind, like the disciples who overheard Jesus praying this, let's kind of take that posture. Look, we get to listen in, and we get to hear what was on Jesus' heart. And we get to hear and be encouraged in the ways that he's praying not only for himself and his disciples, but he's praying for the disciples that would come after. That's you and me if you are a follower of Jesus. And so what do we see initially as his disposition? Well, for one, just right out of the gate, it says Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father. And so just as an encouragement, even as you think about your own prayer life, all right, Jesus spoke these things. It means he had a conversation the way you would have a conversation with a friend, the way you've had conversations already this morning. There's no like high and lofty language one has to do. You don't have to sound all Christian-like or whatever that might mean in order for God to hear you. It's just everyday common speaking. Do you speak to a friend? Do you call somebody up? Did you communicate with anybody this week? Well, the invitation here is so much greater, but there's not a high pressure. It's just he speaks and what I find so interesting is it says that he looked up to heaven. You and I have been bombarded every day. This past week, it'll happen again this week, that will communicate a message that says, look within. You solve it. You do it. You pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You've got to figure this out. You've got to navigate this. You've got to architect a way out of this. You've got to whiteboard your way to freedom or whatever it looks like. Isn't it fascinating? The God-man Jesus looks up. He doesn't look within, he looks up. And if Jesus would look up at the Father, what am I doing looking within? There's, so, there's such a better way to live. And then he says, and Father. And so he speaks normal words and he looks up. He doesn't look within, he looks up. And who is he looking to? He speaks to the Father. He understands that there's this Father in heaven that cares deeply for him. In church, as we see Jesus' posture and we see the purpose for which he came, I want you to know this, that there is a heavenly Father that is so glad that you are here this morning, that is so glad to be able to minister to you and to me, and that his disposition is not one where he's begrudging his, like just grace or that he's, he's annoyed that you're here. He's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you messed up again. Like He is glad to welcome you in because of the work of his son. I love the way that J.I. Packer, I've always appreciated this quote, and every time I come across it again, I'm just reminded of how it's convicting, but it's also so comforting. In his book called Knowing God, he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought 
of being God's child and having God as his father. And if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his, all, his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And so we see Jesus talking to the father. But it's not just that he's got this posture. There's also this purpose. And what's interesting in these first five verses, I told you there's a ton in here. We could just spend time on the first five. But what you see in these verses is Jesus prays. He prays and he's talking about the mission. He's talking about his identity, his identification, and he's talking about glorification. And so first, his mission, it says that the hour has come. The hour is John's way of signifying. He's been doing this all throughout the book as we've been studying this together, that it's about the hour of Jesus's death, that he would go to the cross to die in your place and in my place. So that's what he's looking at. That's the mission. The son has entered into our world to bring us back so that we too might call God our father, have that relationship restored. And then his identification is so clear in these particular verses because he's talking and it's closely related to glory. Well, if you're a good Jewish person, all right, you would have known that you in no way, shape, or form should ever call people to bring you glory. And you would never say things like in verse 5, glorify me in your presence, Lord, with the glory I had with you before the world existed, unless, of course, you actually are God yourself. Like no one would make it about themselves. You, you, that's the problem with humanity is we make it about ourselves. And Jesus is identifying himself through this call to glory. And we'll unpack that more in a moment. But he's saying, listen, like I am the one who actually can complete this mission. I am God in the flesh. And so as he speaks of glorification, he's asking that God would be glorified, that he would be glorified, which again would be absurd. Like that would be so much against the rules, unless, of course, he's God himself. Now, when we think about that, I admit, the idea of God calling us to glorify him can be confusing, right? I think it raises questions like this, like, is God just an egomaniac? Is somehow maybe God insecure? Does God need, like, you and me to pat him on the back and say, hey, way to go, good job, you're doing great, God. Like, no, of course he doesn't need that, but when we think in these terms, sometimes it's like, why in the world does he need us to bring him glory? Does, does he need that? Like, what's going on here? Well, I think one of the best authors and thinkers and theologians on this particular topic is a guy by the name of John Piper, who some of you may have heard of. Let me read to you something that he communicated. He's, communicated, he's basically made his entire ministry about communicating this in dealing with this idea of glory. And then dealing with what we've been looking at throughout the book of John as well about how Jesus wants, he even says it in here, like he wants us to experience like this maximum joy that he wants to give us, help us experience the joy that he has. And that is not separated from God getting his glory. In fact, those things go together. And so Piper says this, he says, he says, God is the one being for whom self-exaltation is actually the most loving act because he is exalting for us what alone can satisfy us fully and forever. If we exalt ourselves, we're actually not loving because we distract people from the one person who can make them happy forever, God. But if God exalts himself, he draws attention to the one person who can make us happy forever, himself. He is not an egomaniac. He is an infinitely glorious, all-satisfying God, offering us everlasting and supreme joy in himself. 
And so when Jesus is praying that he would get the glory, that the Father would get the glory, hear this. He's also praying in that moment for your joy and my joy. Because without this glorification and this mission, this mission that would bring God glory, we don't stand a chance. But because Jesus, motivated by the glory for the glory for the Father and for himself, goes on this rescue mission so that we could be brought in. And the only person who can pull that off is God himself. And then in sort of a summary fashion, you might have heard this before, but if there's a way to distill this down, Piper says this, God then is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That the more you and I find our satisfaction, our rest, our joy, our identity as new creations in Jesus, the more God gets glory. And the more God is glorified, the more joy we actually begin to experience. These are not separate things. God is not calling you to glorify himself. Jesus is not praying that he might be glorified to rob you of joy, as if somehow it's some sort of like fixed pie, and it's like, well, if he gets some of this glory, or other people get some glory, or some joy, I should say, that there's not enough to go around. It's like, no, 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 that we might experience this well of his joy. And so it's in this context then that we see these verses sort of sandwiched between verse one and verse five. Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. He's like, you wanna know what it looks like to actually be satisfied in Jesus? Another way we can talk about that is eternal life. And eternal life is far more than quantity, though it certainly includes that, meaning the number of days that this goes on for all of eternity. But it's also, and much more profoundly even, about quality. Like it is about this life you and I are invited into where we experience deep joy and satisfaction that is not dependent upon circumstances. Jesus has been teaching us that. He's been teaching his disciples that throughout these chapters in the book of John. And here again, he's reminding us, listen, this eternal life, it's not when you, doesn't start when you take your last breath. The moment you trust in Christ, the moment you become a follower of Christ, you are now part of this eternal life. And yes, there's pain and difficulty and sorrow that still exists, but know this, you've been welcomed in, that there's this deep satisfaction we can find. And when he speaks of this, he says, that they may know you. And in the scriptures, this language is the language so often that is spoken of between a husband and a wife and the way that they would know each other, the intimacy that they would have. Certainly a husband and wife know facts about one another. Certainly they probably could recite some things and introduce them to somebody else and say, oh, this is when this person grew up and here's where they went to school and da 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 But that's not the knowing we're talking about. The demons know a lot about God. They can rattle off a lot of facts when it talks about eternal life and that we might know God and that Jesus is praying that more people might experience this, when he has you and me in mind, when he's reminding the disciples that this is the life that they've been invited into, this knowing it is more than just this downloading of information. It is this intimacy. It's this closeness. This is where satisfaction is found. And so after these opening five verses, then Jesus as the disciples continue to sort of like eavesdrop, they get to listen in, they are reminded not only of Jesus' posture and our invitation that way and the purpose by which, for which Jesus came, this mission, 
only pulled off by the Son of God, his identity, for the glory of the Father, for the glory of the Son, and for our joy, that we might know him. He reminds them again, look at with me at verses 6 to 8, that one way we could phrase it is that we so belong to him that he, he views us as a prized possession. Like maybe a way to think about this is like, are you celebrating how God views you? Six to eight says this, I've revealed your name to the people that you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you've given me is from you because I've given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They believe that you sent me. The word and the idea and the phrase that's repeated over and over again, just in those few short verses, is gave. That there's this image that the father had a prized possession that he gave to the son, that he entrusted to the son. One of the resources that I really love is just, it's a, it's a very simple resource. It's the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. I would commend it to you. And just reading through this text this week and using it as one of the things to just kind of a supplement to study and looking over some of the notes Whoever wrote these particular notes spoke of something that many of us have witnessed or been part of or things that we'd be familiar with, and it's when a wedding is taking place. And I've officiated a number of weddings to know that typically this is how it goes, right? The groom is up front, and we're all kind of standing here, and, um, and eventually the doors open and the bride walks in. And more often than not, the bride is not walking in by herself, but is walking in on the arm of who? Of her father. And eventually the father makes his way to the front with the bride. And then I, as the pastor, whoever's officiating, will say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father, if he's following the instructions, will say, I do, or her mother and I do, or something along those lines. And there's this exchange, there's this giving. And so what I found so fascinating is this image, and just they're calling this very simple thing to mind, that you picture this, like, who gives these people, who gives these sinners to this Savior? That Jesus, throughout the scriptures, is spoken of as the groom, and we as the bride. And we've been brought to him by the Father. And when that question is posed, the Father says, I do. I give them to the Son, I give them to the son because of who he actually is, that he's the one that can live a sinless and perfect life. He's the one that can die in the place of this bride that is anything but pure. He is the one that actually can pay for an infinite number of sins because he's God himself. He's the one who can conquer Satan, sin, and death by rising in. That's the only groom that can bring life. And the father with exuberance says, I do. And he hands them off. He hands us off to Jesus, the perfect groom. And now our reality is we've been, we've been made into a new people. You are his prized possession. And so as Jesus is praying, these, these things are at the forefront of his mind. So thankful to God for what God entrusted him with. The way he would steward that the ultimate care that Jesus as the perfect groom has for us as the bride that is anything but perfect. The apostle Peter, 
which I just love. We're gonna, as we get further into this, right? We already know part of his story. Like he messes up. He's, he's real bold at times. And then he just like runs away like a coward. But later on, he would write this letter, First Peter, as Jesus restores him, as he helps, uh, makes it possible for Peter to continue in this mission, to experience grace. In light of who we are, Peter would write this to a people that are dealing with trials and difficulties and suffering. He said this, My friends, remember, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises, or some translations would say may proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. These are the things that Jesus has on his mind as he's praying, as he's hours away from going to the cross. He's thinking about the people that God has entrusted him. He's the groom and we as the bride. And yes, he's praying most specifically even here for the disciples that are, that are around him. But as we will see even next week, as this prayer continues, it includes us as well that that's the disposition of the Father toward you, that Jesus willingly takes us as the bride. And so for the remaining few minutes, let's do this. Let's look then. If this all sorts of begins to set up, Jesus makes then specific requests. He makes these petitions to the Lord. As we look through 9 through 19, there's probably more things that we could dive into, but just let me highlight a few of the things. So Jesus says, I pray for them, right? How fascinating is this? So often, my, my prayers, there's nothing wrong with praying and asking for things, right? And Jesus is not afraid of asking for things. But he's also like, I'm praying for them. Like he's pouring his heart out for the disciples and those that would come after. He's praying for his church, the church that he would die for. I pray for them. He's like, I'm not praying for the world. He's not like saying that it's bad to pray for the world. But he's like, right now, I'm praying for those that are in Christ, for those that you have given me because they are yours. And everything I have is yours, everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. And then verse 11. I want to look at 11 to 12 and 15 to 16. He prays for protection. It's like he's praying that God would guard us. He says this, I am no longer in the world. But he's like, they are in the world. And he's like, I'm coming to you. So some, like, what's going to happen here? Holy Father, protect them by your name. He's saying, your identity, your character, who you are, would you protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one? While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction. Speaking of Judas, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And then in verse 15, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. The God-man Jesus, hours before he would die, before he would give his life, is praying for his disciples, and he's praying for you and for me, and he's praying for protection. How wonderful is that, that he cares deeply about you and me, and he's inviting us again and again, will you trust that God is worthy of our trust. Even if circumstances would say that he's not, we look no further than the cross of Christ and know, oh, he is worthy of our trust, of our affection, of our worship. He's worthy of receiving glory because of what he has done. 
that there's this name, the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying, I've been communicating the name that you and I might have our names written in the book of life, that you and I might be given new names as sons and daughters of the king. This is the story that we're part of. I love the, the way the Proverbs speak of it. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, it says this, the name of the Lord then is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. That's the name. What are you running to? In the trials and the difficulties, when you, you feel the weight of the world, when you feel the burdens, when you feel like everything or everyone is against you, the name of the Lord is that strong tower. That's what Jesus has been proclaiming. That's what Jesus has been inviting people to run into. The righteous man runs into it and is actually safe. Jesus is praying for your safety. He's praying that you and I might be protected. Verse 11 reminds us, he says he's praying for unity. It's not a uniformity. Jesus is the one who has created everyone and everything, and there's this glorious diversity. How boring would the world be if we were all the same? So it's not uniformity, but there is a prayer for unity. And so he speaks here, and he says, so that they may be one as we are one. I'm not gonna spend much time in there. That, that gets highlighted more in the text next week. But just know that that's what he's praying for. And if ever there was a prayer of Jesus that's needed right here, right now, in this place, in this cultural moment, in this time, we need unity as the church. And then Jesus prays for joy. Look with me at verse 13. He says, now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. That my friend, that is a mind-blowing idea, category, word that Jesus gives. It's not just that you and I would experience a little bit of joy like on our own. He is praying to God the Father for you and for me and for the disciples that my joy, that they may have my joy completed in them. You talk about satisfaction in God that would bring glory to God, that we get to have the joy of Jesus that when we understand what he has done for us, when we get his righteousness, he is praying that we would have just this deep and abiding joy, again, that's not dependent on what is happening and swirling around us. He's saying, my friends, I want my joy to be completed in them. What a savior we have, one who is worthy of our worship. This is what he's praying for. That would not be the natural default of my heart. And yet he's like, I want people to experience joy. And then as we look at these final couple of verses here, two last things. In verse 17, Jesus prays that they, it would be that you and I, the disciples, would be sanctified in truth. Verse 17 says this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The idea of sanctification is this idea of being set apart, be made more and more, like conform more into the image and likeness of Jesus. It's an, it speaks of holiness, the lie of religion flips these things and says, oh, you want to be justified before God? You want to have the love of God? Then it's up to you to work out, like to, to be good enough that you would sanctify yourself somehow in order to be justified. The good news of the gospel says, no, you are justified through no effort of your own, through the, only the merit of Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own, your own doing. It is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and following. All right, so he's reminding us over and over and over again, you are justified through the finished work of Jesus. And then as the more you press into that justification, it leads to sanctifying. 
And it's sanctification through the truth, not your own effort. The truth is you can't do it and I can't do it. It's coming back to what Jesus has done, sanctify in truth. But we live in a time and a place, and it's not just out there. I don't mean this is some sort of judgment against the world. It is in here. It's present in the church. It's present in our own hearts. And even if we wouldn't use this language, there is this constant pressure for us to define truth how we want to define it. That is not an option that Jesus gives for us. And it's not, again, because he's trying to rob you of life and joy and satisfaction. He's saying the only way to be conformed into my image and likeness, the only way to be sanctified is through the truth. The everyday message you and I are bombarded with is you define truth for yourself. You find your truth. You do your truth. I wouldn't challenge you this week from the songs that you hear to the TV shows you watch, to the movie you watch, to conversations, just how often this comes up. And I don't, I don't mean that in a, like, to sit in self-righteous judgment. May it actually break our heart that this is the world we find ourselves in. I'll give you one example uh, this week, all right? Uh, Heather and I were watching season two of The Morning Show. I don't know if you, you've seen that. Uh, and there's this conversation that's taking place between two of the main characters, between Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, and they sit down, all right? Here's Jennifer Aniston's words. We need to decide what the truth is. If there ever was like an encapsulation of like this cultural moment, it's like, oh yeah, in this moment, we get to define what truth is. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying there's actually an objective truth and it's embodied in him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So the word that's given here when it speaks of truth, it's not meant as a descriptor. The word here is aletheia. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. It's not an adjective describing the word. It actually is a noun. Your word is truth. This is what defines ultimate reality, is the word of God, this gospel, this good news, the person, the work of Jesus. And so as we think about this and growing in holiness and sanctification, one author named Josh Moody put it this way in his commentary. If you're struggling with some sin, ask yourself this question. What lie am I believing Behind sinful habits, there is always a lie, and the tool for release is always, by the truth, your word is truth. We need to keep coming back to the truth of who Jesus is, of our identity in him. We find our deep satisfaction in him, and as we do, we bring glory to God. The prayer of Jesus begins to be answered, and the more glory God gets, the more joy we begin to experience. We'll close with this, the last thing that Jesus prays for in this particular section. And this is a theme that continues. And again, I would remind you that sometimes it's easy to come in and we, we hear a particular sermon and, and we forget that it's part of a broader context. All of these things have been readying a people for the time when Jesus would go to the cross, he would resurrect three days later, he would eventually ascend, he would send the spirit so that what? So the people of God could live together on the mission of God for the glory of God. That you and I, do, we are not needed by God, right? But he has invited us to play. He's invited us to participate. He's invited us to be heralds of this good news. And so in 18 to 19, he prays for the mission. As you sent me, he says, Father, into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So as we think about this, Jesus has been 
forthright. He's not held anything back. He has told the disciples. He has told us there is a world. And by the world, he's not just talking about his creation. Again, he's talking about the, the systems and the structures and the sin patterns that want nothing to do with God and that would encourage more rebellion against God, against his purposes, would encourage you to find your truth and lie to you that that is somehow how you're going to find joy. That's what he means by the world. And so he hasn't taken the disciples and brought them out of the world. He's saying, and he's praying to the Father, Father, I'm going back up into the heavenly realm. I'm going back. I'm going to be at the right hand of the throne of God. But these people that I care deeply about, my friends, they are here in the world. And as fathers, you've sent me, I am sending them. And so he's praying for them. And he's praying that they would be set apart for this mission. And he's praying that they would be encouraged and protected because there is work to do. You and I get to herald the good news of the gospel. You may not do that in a vocational ministry sense, all right? Most of the world won't, and that's a good thing. But you've been placed in a neighborhood, you've been placed at a school, in a workplace, in particular, you know, families or relationships, all of that ordained by God. That Jesus, as he was sent, he has sent us. But because the world can be frightening, right, there is this temptation for us to just huddle up and be together and just be around other Christians. And we need to be around other Christians, but if every moment of our time and, and like energies is spent towards huddling up with Christians, fearful of the world that's out there, we're missing it. The call, what Jesus is driving at us here, maybe you've heard it phrased this way, is to be in the world but not of the world. To be for the world, to minister to the world but not become like the world. And the way that that gets lived out, the way we operate in this with sanctification to be set apart is we stay closely tethered to Jesus We've got nothing to offer the world if we're trying to do it in our own strength. Because when we try and do things in our own strength, there's not a lot of joy. And then we're just, in, it's terrible for evangelism. Hey, come follow me. I'm a miserable human being, right? Like, why would you want in on that? But there's the joy, the maximum joy that Jesus is offering us. And it's tied to this mission that we're invited into. You may remember, I feel like I've shared this story. I'm at that point in my preaching I don't know, I'm like, did I share this story? I have no idea, um, but maybe I'll, but I'll share it. None, nonetheless, it, when I hear this call of mission and not separating from the world, there's always, there's this historical figure that comes to mind, but the guy's name is Simon Stylites, all right? And he lived, his years were 390 to 459. He was a, uh, he was a Syrian monk, all right? Now, Apparently, the story is told that this man was so serious about wanting to be holy and be set apart, which that, that can be a good thing, he would go to other hang out with other monks, and eventually they would clash because they weren't serious enough for him. So if a group of monks all right, like, are like, dude, this guy's like way too serious. You know that like, this guy's at like playing at a whole other level, right? And so eventually he's like, what do I do? I don't want to become like the world. So what he decides to do is he fashions, he, he constructs a 60-foot platform, a 60-foot pole, all right? And he scaled this pole, and on the top of it was a six-foot by six-foot platform. And for the final 37 years of Simon's life, he lived on that. At night, he would chain himself to the platform in case he like, tossed and turned at night so he didn't fall down to his death. People would bring him food. They'd hoist it up there somehow. I don't know how they did all of that. But this man was so devoted to not wanting to be tainted by the world that he lived up 60 feet above it. And I don't think any of us are like close to doing that, all right? But it speaks to the heart where are we separating ourselves 
in such a way we're losing touch with what are the questions that people are asking? What are the things that are weighing on people's minds and hearts? Are we willing to actually enter in? Are we willing to actually be accused like Jesus was? Like, look at them, a friend of like, you know, gluttons and drunkards and sinners and all of that and tax collectors. Simon was a man who tried to escape by just going out and Jesus' disposition Rather than going and elevating himself up on a platform, you could say he left his platform. He left the heavenly realm and he emptied himself. Go and read Philippians 2. Entered into our world, took on flesh and blood, lived an obedient life that took him all the way to the cross. And there, his coronation as the king was he was elevated and put on a cross. And the calling then for us as his followers is how do we empty ourselves How do we remember what Jesus has done for us? How do we engage in this mission? Are we willing to embrace this cruciform life where we follow our crucified Savior? Willing to sacrifice for the good of other people so that other people might experience this maximum joy that Jesus has on offer. And this is why Jesus says, I sanctify myself for them. Doesn't mean Jesus had a sin problem and needed to grow in his holiness. Jesus, you need to become more like Jesus. He's like, I am Jesus. All right, you're good, right? Like, he didn't need to do that. But it means he was set apart so that they, that you and I also may be sanctified by the truth, that he has this mission for us. And so, as we close, I want to encourage you in this. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it this way. Reminds us that it's going to be difficult to be on mission. It's going to be challenging. You're going to be misunderstood But know that Jesus was and is praying for you, that Jesus was the one that was set apart to fuel this mission. The gospel fuels mission. The writer of Hebrews said this way, let us run then with endurance, the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And then look at this line, for the joy, the joy that lay before him. It was the cross that lay before him but for the joy of bringing you and I into the family, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the place of victory. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death, and he has invited us now to be a sent people in all the places and contexts and neighborhoods where we dwell. So as you think through this, ask the the Spirit to lead you in repentance? What are the ways that we've bought into the narrative? We've forgotten our identity. We've forgotten our calling. That we might, again, remember who we are. And we're going to rejoice together. Let me pray, and then I'll tell us how we're going to continue in the, the service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for your willingness to enter into this rescue mission to be the perfect groom, to take in us as a sinful, wayward bride. And through your word, through your truth, that you, are, that you are cleansing us, that you are molding us and shaping us into the people you desire us to be. Would we trust you for that? Would we remember our new identities? Will we not seek to move away from the gospel? Will we continually run back? So Spirit, lead us there. Lead us in repentance. Remind us where true joy comes from. 
And God, we ask that you would move and work for your glory and our great joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.